Let's, let's read God's word together this morning. Would you stand with me again another time? 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13 is our text for this morning. And then we'll have the delight of gathering around the Lord's table together. Let's read this together in unison. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would cause your spirit to illumine this text to us. And not just for our understanding intellectually, but that it would illumine our hearts, our motives, the deepest places of our impulse as we walk with you, as we serve you, as we speak the gospel. Help us to see our worldliness and our self-focus for what it is. And may we confess it and find cleansing in Christ. And, and may the Spirit of God impart to us divine, Christ-centered motives for all that we do as your followers. Thank you for Christ and his infinite worth for giving him to us as our God and Savior and King and Redeemer. We pray that we would see him today and be reoriented in our witness and in our service toward him. <clears throat> we pray that you would exhort us and comfort us and encourage us and cause us to rejoice as we study your word today. For your glory we pray. In the name of Jesus the Son, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As you prepare to study this text this morning, verses 8 through 13, I really have two questions I want to ask you to, to think about with me by way of introduction. The first question is, what motivates you to do the will of your Master, the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the impulse in your heart to obey Christ, to serve Him, to witness the Gospel for His sake? You'll certainly remember the many exhortations that the Apostle Paul has given to Timothy in this letter up to this point. You remember in chapter 1 how the Apostle Paul told Timothy, Timothy, stir up the gift of God within you. The Spirit of God has placed a gift in your heart within you to, to serve the body, to advance the gospel. Stir it up. Don't let it stagnate. Stir it up. And he told him then, don't be ashamed of the gospel, but share in suffering with me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the other messengers of the gospel. Paul refers to himself. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering. And the most obvious way that we 
or Timothy would share in the suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel as this letter unfolds is, is in the faithful proclamation of the gospel. He tells him later on to follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. Don't depart from being absorbed in the gospel and being faithful to the way that the apostles have explained the gospel and delivered it to us. And then he says, guard it. Guard the gospel. Guard the good deposit. And then you come into chapter 2, and the Apostle Paul is still exhorting Timothy, and he says, as you guard the gospel and follow those words and proclaim the gospel and suffer for it, do so strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. Do so as a good soldier, willing to share in suffering, being focused on what our captain has given for us to do and not distracted by the, 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 the affairs of daily life, not being so absorbed in the daily life of this world that we neglect to do what our commanding officer, the Lord Jesus Christ, has commissioned us. Do it as a soldier. Do it like a hardworking farmer, but do it in the strength of Christ. Do it filled with the Spirit. So as we think about all of those matters and we work hard at them, and we trust God's grace to do it. What's your motive for that? Why do it? Do you take the time to think about your motives? What your impulses are? Your inner drive to obey those things? If you could clearly boil down your heart to its most basic motive for what you do as the follower of Christ, what would it be? Now, we know the right answers to that, don't we? What's the right answer? Well, we do all things for the glory of God. We know that. But is that really why we do what we do? Is that really our motive? Did you know that there's nothing quite so effective as suffering to reveal the basic motive of our hearts as we obey Christ? Do you realize that? Because suffering has a way of shutting down many Christ-commanded activities that are driven by selfish motives. Have you noticed that? When you observe that shutdown in your own life or, or in a brother or sister in Christ's life, you can ask yourself, well then, if, if this pressure, this affliction, this suffering shut down my witness for Christ or my obedience to serving Christ in, in, according to his will, well then what was my motive then? What ought to have been my motive? What motive would have strengthened me to endure in obedience through the suffering? Suffering is so instrumental in revealing why we do what we do. Take sharing the gospel, for example. Let's spell this out a little more clearly if we can. When you're sharing the gospel as Christ commands us, but you are doing so for a self-serving reason. There could be lots of self-serving reasons to witness, right? You feel needed by people. You, you're, you're putting kind of a, a tally marks of how many people the Lord has used you to bring into the kingdom or, or whatever. There could be lots of self-serving. It, it, it makes you feel spiritual. It makes you feel valued or whatever. There could be lots of self-serving motives in doing a godly thing. But the moment you sense that your personal cost, which would greatly increase under suffering, begins to outweigh your personal return, 
that's when you're tempted to stop those godly activities. This is costing me too much. I'm not, I'm not getting from this what I wanted from it, even though it's a good thing. But when you are sharing the gospel for a Christ-serving reason, the moment you sense that it will cost you much to continue sharing the gospel, your resolve deepens. Because you realize that there's no loss in the process of sharing the gospel, suffering included, that could surpass the gain for Christ's sake. Do you see? That's something to think about. Maybe process that if it's not clicking so clearly, but we... This is important that we think about those things. And it's vitally important that we, by the Spirit of God, learn to identify and confess and repent of selfish motives and embrace the motives of the good servant of Christ as we do our Master's will so that we can learn to be faithful even in the midst of suffering and endure for His glory. And this is, this is what this text is going to help us with. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is presenting us with godly motives for serving Christ and speaking for Christ, even in the midst of suffering. One more question before we get to the text to help us to get oriented to this text and to see the need in our lives that this text meets. Second, how do you respond to your own suffering? How do you answer your heart when you're grieved by various afflictions so that you do not ultimately become overwhelmed by them and halt in doing the will of Christ? How do you seek to encourage another believer who is being pressed by suffering? What do you say to them? Everyone experiences suffering, right? It's a major theme in this letter. That's why we're talking about it so much. And that's not a bad thing. Because suffering is a major reality that we live in a fallen world. Because we live in a fallen world and we're fallen human beings and, and we live in a world that is hostile to Christ. It's a common experience. So we have to understand how to respond to it. Every believer experiences suffering at some point. So how do you deal with it in your mind? And there's different ways that people deal with it. I'm just wondering for you, how do you deal with it? Some people downplay suffering. They minimize it. They sort of ignore it. Maybe they just say, well, I'm just going to focus on all the positive stuff. Or they say, well, somebody else is suffering more than I am, I'm sure. They sort of just sweep it away. Others may magnify the, the suffering. They, they focus on the pain. They, they, they focus on the loss, and it sort of overwhelms them. And, and probably few people respond to it like the Apostle Paul did, where he identifies the suffering, he says about it what's true, but then he focuses on God's productivity through the suffering, the gain that God promises to, to bring about. So when believers are struggling under their suffering, what do they need or want from other brothers and sisters in Christ? There's kind of two responses usually to suffering that we would we would give to someone who is suffering, a fellow brother and sister in Christ. Sometimes, and, and it probably differs in personality as well, but some people give first and foremost gentle sympathy, right? I'm so sorry that you're having to deal with this and, and feel this. Other people tend to want to give strength. You know, that, that, that's painful, but let me encourage you by 
saying this to you. And, you know, through the letter of 2 Timothy, we understand that Paul has recognized Timothy's struggles, and, and he, is, he sees his need under suffering. And it, it may be that Timothy, and it seems to be so as we look at these two letters, both First and 2 Timothy, it seems to be that Timothy has possibly had some self-serving motives in his ministering. And, and that's why Timothy has halted in his obedience to some of Christ's commands. And yet what we see here is that Paul does not coddle Timothy. This is interesting as you hear his words. He's not coddling him. He's not, he's not pampering him. He seeks to strengthen him. He doesn't even really give sympathy, though that can be very helpful and useful and important at times. He gives him strength, spiritual strength, to trust and obey in the Spirit and endure through suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, if I could boil down this section to one Pauline, all-consuming motive that he would give to us to endure suffering, it would be Romans 8.18. And that's my main point, and we'll look at it through this text, but I'm borrowing right from Romans 8.18. The suffering of this present life is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us Therefore, share in suffering as you proclaim the gospel. This is the ultimate motive. The losses and the, the, the pain and the affliction that you may experience now will be worth it when you see the glory in eternity. And Paul unpacks that glory and that will one day be revealed to us in three different ways so that we can be motivated by it. We, we need this. We truly need this as the body of Christ. And I hope that Christ is getting us ready to move out more and more into the, the community and proclaim the gospel boldly and accurately, which will inevitably elicit suffering on some level. And then, by God's grace, we can have these motives. The Spirit of God would give us these motives. Number one, be motivated First, by, the by Christ's glory. You can follow along in your outline. Be motivated by Christ's glory. This is verse 8. As Paul considers the suffering that Timothy is going through for the sake of the gospel, he says this, Remember Christ, Jesus Christ. Remember Him when you're suffering. As you pursue these, these spiritual services and ministry, and suffer for it. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Remember this, Timothy. Let it come to your mind. Be mindful of this. Hold this in your memory. Make mention of this to yourself. Remember Jesus Christ. <coughs> but what about Jesus Christ are we to remember that will motivate us? <coughs> Excuse me in spite of suffering, and propel us, as it were, spiritually, through suffering with endurance. And there's two descriptions here that, that Paul gives to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. Is that what you would expected Paul to say? Remember Christ risen from the dead. Remember Christ the offspring of David. Let's look at those descriptions. This designation, risen from the dead, 
What does it declare to us? It declares to us that Jesus Christ is both Savior and God. Whenever the apostles talk about resurrection, they mean for you to think all that led up to the resurrection. Because what is resurrection without what? Death and burial, right? And suffering. Remember Christ who suffered and died and was buried and rose. And in that resurrection, it was that resurrection that designated Jesus Christ to be the Son of God or God the Son in power. Romans chapter 1-4 says that clearly. It was the resurrection that declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God with power. And also, it was the resurrection that demonstrated God the Father's complete satisfaction in the saving work of Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son humbled Himself and suffered infinitely as our Savior, bearing the sorrows of the curse upon Himself. Bearing the guilt of our sins and our sentence of eternal death. He bore all of that as the infinitely worthy Son. He owned it all. All the way to the grave. He bore it. And He broke the bands of death and rose from the grave in magnificent power, conquering Conquering sin, conquering death, conquering hell, conquering the grave for all of His people. Jesus Christ is indeed a glorious Savior and God. Remember, when you suffer, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And not only that, but Paul designates Jesus Christ as the offspring of David. Now that's interesting. This designation declares that Jesus Christ is both real man and the one true King of Kings. So that first designation, risen from the dead, shows him, reveals him to be God and Savior. And this designation reveals him to be man and king. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, as our perfect Savior, took on true humanity in all of its sorrows. I think of Isaiah 53. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Except for sin, right? He, he did not sin. But he, did, he took on the lowest of humanity in order to fulfill his promises to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, to fulfill those promises to David to provide the perfect Savior King who would eternally reign to conquer all who rebel against him and to purify and perfect all who submit to him in faith and love. This is a reigning, conquering King. The Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns, like it says in 1 Corinthians 15, He reigns to subject all His enemies under His feet, and He reigns to perfect and purify His people. Like it says in Hebrews 1, He sat down in that exalted place of King, having purified His people. And so Jesus Christ greatly humbled Himself and became a human offspring to accomplish that. He became the offspring of David's line through the seed of the woman so that he would be both a humble, sinless man and the exalted, righteous king over God's people. I think of the text that says this so well 
Galatians 4, 4, and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This, this glorious path of becoming an offspring so that he would become the king of kings over his people is also declared so well. Acts chapter 2, 29-36. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is still with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants, who's that? Jesus, the offspring of David. He would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the Israel, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's packed into this title, the offspring of David. The Son of God who became human offspring to suffer and die and rise and ascend and be seated as Lord of all, the King on David's throne forever in power and glory. But why did Christ do all of this? Why did Christ do all this? He did it to redeem us and to make us sons and daughters and to purify us and reign over us, to perfect us and bring us to God the Father. So that we could eternally praise God the Father and and rejoice in His glory and know the eternal pleasures in His glorious love. Dear ones, this is who and what Paul is describing to Timothy and to us when he says, remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. He's pointing us to His glory as the God-man as Savior King and the glory of His powerful saving work and reign. 
Again, I, I, re- I allude to these verses. Hebrews 1, 3, and 4 describes this. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited <clears throat> is more excellent than theirs. Can you see, can you get a small glimpse with me in this of the glory of Christ as Savior and God and the Messiah, Son of Man, who became King over all to save you? He did that to redeem you, to bring you into this glorious place of oneness with Him and the Father forever. But there's more to consider in these titles. Let's let's meditate with me a little bit more on this. Notice that with each of these designations, there's implied this path of suffering that Christ endured before He was glorified. You can see it. He's risen from the dead. He was the offspring of David. He was the offspring first and then became the king. He died in shame and suffering before He rose in power and glory. He humbled Himself to take on the lowest experience of human offspring before He was highly exalted and given the name above every name and the throne above every throne. We say it this way. There was the cross before the what? The crown for Jesus. There was the pain before the pleasure. There was the suffering before the glory. There was the shame before the joy. This is part of what Paul is is working into this text and what he wants to bring to Timothy's mind. Christ took this path and he took it willingly and he endured it sinlessly. And again, I ask, why? Why would he do such a thing? And it points again to the glory of Christ. How did he endure this faithfully? My mind runs to Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, what did He do? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Ask yourself this question clearly in your mind. Think of it. Why did Jesus take such a path of suffering before glory? And what was the joy of Jesus? What was His joy that carried Him through that suffering through the cross, that strengthened him through that suffering, that compelled him to despise the shame, to think little of the shame that he experienced, rather than to be crushed by it until he was seated in the place of king and lord in glory and majesty. His purpose for enduring such suffering was to be seated as the verse says, to be seated at the right hand of God in glory, having purified a people to praise His Father and enjoy Him forever. I want to say that again. That was Christ's joy. He was His joy that propelled Him through the suffering. We're going somewhere with this. The joy that propelled Him through that suffering was to be seated (coughs) at the right hand of God, having purified a people to gather around Him, to praise His Father and enjoy His glory forever. (coughs) Think of it this way. 
Christ Jesus loves his Father so much. And Christ Jesus loves his people so much that it was his greatest joy to sit as Lord and King among his purified people, having perfected them so that they could experience with him his Father's love and praise him for all of eternity. Do you see that final expression of glory that Jesus had in mind? To be seated among his purified people who are praising the Father, enjoying his glory forever. That experience of glory is still future for us. And in a sense, it's still future for the man Christ Jesus. And it was that joy that enabled him to endure the suffering of the cross and think little of the shame and he, that he bore in doing the will of his Father. And so in a sense, even for Christ, the suffering of his earthly life was not to be compared with the glory that was coming for him. We see this joy and this glory that Christ anticipated when he prayed in John 17, the very night before he was crucified, he prayed this, remember, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And you know when that joy will come? When, when that joy of Christ will be ultimately realized? 2 Thessalonians 1.10 When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. I love that verse. That is amazing to think about. Christ, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed. So we see in these designations, risen from the dead, offspring of David, we see Christ's inherent glory as God and Savior and man and king. We see Christ's path to glory, this path of humiliation and suffering and death and resurrection and ascension and exaltation to the, to the throne of David. And we see Christ's joy and glory, that joy that propelled him through that path of suffering and shame to be seated as Lord among his perfected people who magnify his glory and together enjoy and praise the glorious love of the Father forever. So why do I bring all this to your attention? Why am I, am I making this path of Christ before you and, and showing you his glory in it? What's the application? How does that help us in the moment of suffering to endure? Here's the point. When you suffer for the sake of speaking the gospel of Jesus and serving him as your master, you can endure that suffering when you remember Jesus Christ in his glory as God, as Savior, as man, as King. He's the one for whose sake you suffer. It's for his sake. It's for his name. He is, he is worthy to be so valued that we willingly suffer in our service to him. He's worth that. He is worthy to have such love and devotion given to him. He's worthy to have us spend our comforts and our lives in his cause. He's worthy of that because of who he is. He is worthy to fill our gospel message and our songs of salvation. 
He is worthy of our obedience, our love, our loyalty. He is worthy of our total submission and service and any sacrifice. He is worthy of that. And isn't that what we see in Revelation 5? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And if we have the glory of Christ exalted in our minds as we suffer in his cause, we will embrace that same sort of joy that the early Christians did. Acts 5, 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And, and as they suffered, and they weren't discouraged by that suffering, they rejoiced in it. And then every day, right at the next verse, at every day in the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They just got whipped and reprimanded for that. They rejoice about it, and they turn around and keep witnessing. What gives them that kind of endurance through suffering? You see, these early believers were not daunted by their suffering because their sense of the glory of Christ and His name was so great that they rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer for His name. It was a joy to them for the worth of Christ. They were glad to suffer and lose something of earth in the cause of Christ because that earthly loss and suffering demonstrated the worth of Christ and it gave them opportunity to express their love for Christ because he's worthy. And Jesus Christ is not just worthy because of who he is, but also because of what he was willing to endure for us. It makes, it, it makes him, how can you say this? this? This isn't even right to say it this way. Christ is infinitely worthy in and of himself, but this just layers our sense of his worth because in his infinite value inherently, he also endured for us and our salvation infinite cost to bring us into his joy. Like the text says, worthy is the lamb who was what? Slain. That escalates his sense of worth in our minds. And we show his worth and express our love for him when we endure suffering for his sake in his cause. We don't endure suffering in order to repay him. Please don't ever confuse that in your mind. We don't think that, and that's not the motive. Well, I'm going to endure suffering because I'm going to repay Christ for the suffering that he made for me, or I'm going to try to earn a favor with Christ by my suffering. That, that, is, a, that is a large motive in the hearts of many Pilgrims all around the world, shall we say. That's not this. That's not a biblical motive. That's a legalistic motive. No, we endure suffering as an expression of worship, as an expression of love and gratitude toward Him for all that He is and all that He did to bring us to Himself and to His Father. He is worthy. And dear ones, listen. The more you endure suffering now for His sake and in His cause, the more, listen, the more you will magnify his glory and worth when you stand in his presence on that eternal day and all your suffering for his sake is recounted and redounds to reflect his worth on that day. Do you see? The more you suffer now, 
the more it will be recounted that Christ was worthy of that suffering when you're with Him. And on that day, by your faithful enduring and suffering now, you will magnify the glory of Christ and participate in completing His joy that brought Him through His suffering. And so this is why the writer of Hebrews says what he, what it, what he says. Hebrews 12, 2-4, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And considering that joy of Christ as the seated King who has prepared a purified and perfected people who will, who will magnify that joy with Him one day, He says to us, then consider Him. It's the same thing Paul is saying here. Remember Christ Jesus. Consider Him then who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the first motive that the Spirit of God presents to the people of God in this text so that they may endure suffering and faithfully speak for Christ and serve Christ is this. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Him in His inherent glory and remember Him in His path of suffering to glory and remember the glory that's coming, the joy that He anticipated to, to welcome all of His people around Him to, to share His glory, to praise His Father. All the work of Christ in that. He is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. There's no suffering that you or I could endure that He is not worthy of. Be motivated by Christ's glory. But secondly, this morning, be motivated by the elect's glory. This is very interesting. Take this motive with you today as well. Look at verse 9 and 10. For which I am suffering, Paul says. I, I preach this gospel filled with the glory of Christ. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Just that one phrase is absolutely gripping, isn't it? That one sentence right at the end of verse 9. But the word of God is not bound. I love that phrase. That just fills us with so much, mo with, with, with so much ambition to preach the gospel, even in itself. Let's, let's catch the logic of Paul's thought here. Jesus Christ, in all His glory, fills the message of Paul's gospel. And Paul, the apostle, he, he calls it his gospel, my gospel, he says, because it's the one that he's been proclaiming. It's the one that Christ gave to him. It's the one that he's been faithful to deliver to the Gentiles for years now by the time he writes this letter. But then in verse 9, Paul's, Paul uh, points to his personal experience of suffering. That comes to the forefront here. I am suffering, Paul says. I, for this gospel proclamation, I am suffering. In fact, he, he he's, says he's bound with chains as a criminal. Paul is, is, is talking about his suffering in a very real way. I mean, he's talking about his incarceration in the Mamertine prison. 
like we've talked about. He's, taught, he, he, he's being treated as a criminal. He's on death row, like, a, like an enemy of the Roman state. He's about to be martyred. Why? For the sake of the gospel. He suffers because he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world hates Christ. The world hates the gospel of Christ. The world system hates the messengers of the gospel of Christ. He is suffering imprisonment in horrible conditions, facing martyrdom for the sake of the gospel of Christ. So here's the question. What motivated Paul to keep on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ under such terrible conditions? To endure suffering and to keep on speaking the gospel. Paul tells Timothy in verse 9b through 10, the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. (coughs) Paul is telling Timothy that he's willing to endure everything. You see that? Everything, he he says it. Everything. For the sake of the elect. That is some thought. Everything? What could be included in everything? What could be included in everything for you in the next 40 years? For the sake of the elect? This is some motive. In other words, Paul is willing to endure any kind of suffering in the process of getting the gospel of Jesus Christ to those whom God has chosen for salvation. And he will suffer whatever he has to suffer in order to preach the gospel to them. So that they may, why? So that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Wow, this is an amazing motive full of spirit-endued love. Even if he has to suffer greatly to get the gospel to the elect, and even if he finds himself in prison in the process of getting the gospel to the elect, even that imprisonment will not prevent the elect from obtaining salvation because the word of God is not bound. Paul can be bound. I mean, think of the story when he was in Philippi, right? Philippians chapter 1. He was there in prison, and he tells them, chapter 1, verse 12, what is apparently a setback is actually worked to advance the gospel. So Paul, Paul gets taken out of, out of the, the, the play, as it were, of the, the broad church in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the regions where he was pastoring. And he goes to prison, and everybody must have thought, wow, this is, this is unthinkable. We're lost. We're sunk. We're going down. Paul's gone. And what's Paul doing in prison? Hey, do you know who Christ is? Right? He's, he's witnessing. He's like, the whole household of Caesar has heard the gospel. They're greeting you. I <laughs> think this is amazing. The gospel continues to advance. The word of God is not bound. And think again of what God accomplished through his spirit, by Paul in prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, I mean, the word of God is not bound. Suffer as he will in the process of getting the gospel to the elect, 
The word of God will not be hindered and the elect will be saved. The word will reach and call and save the elect. So Paul is willing to endure any suffering because the word will triumph through his suffering and through his suffering the elect will hear the word of the gospel and obtain salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now let's take... I said all of that in historic context, right? Let's take it and bring it home. God has chosen from eternity those whom He will save. We know this text after text in the, in the New Testament. I'm not going to go through all the text. I'm just going to state it. Paul says it here. God has chosen. That's what he means by elect. Those whom God has chosen from eternity that He will save. That's how God's plan of redemption works. It's not dependent on human will. It's dependent on God who brings forth new birth in the lives of dead sinners. And God has chosen to do it this way. God is absolutely sovereign over the salvation of sinners. And all whom God has chosen for salvation will be saved. Not one will be lost. We know this. John 6 says this. All whom the Father gives to me, Jesus says, will come to me, and he who comes to me I will never cast out. Glorious, comforting truth. Yet, yet, God has appointed a human means of bringing about the conversion of those whom he has chosen for eternal salvation. And God's appointed human means is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the mouths of those whom he has already saved. That's us. That was Timothy. That was Paul. However, the process of getting the gospel to the chosen, whether here locally or around the world, will be a process that includes suffering. Paul makes that so very clear. If we preach the gospel rightly, the world will react to it hostily. If we engage ourselves faithfully in the process of getting the gospel to the elect, we will inevitably suffer various ways, various degrees. But in that suffering, we must and we can endure because there's a motive that Paul gives us, a spirit, a Holy Spirit-given motive, a Holy Spirit-empowered motive. Here it is. Because the elect must and will be saved and Christ must be eternally glorified in their salvation. You ever think about that when you suffer? I'm witnessing because the elect must be saved and will be saved and must enjoy the glory of Christ and Christ must be glorified when he is seated in their midst someday at the throne of the Father. That's my motive. For the sake of the elect. That's your second motive for enduring suffering as you speak of Christ and serve Christ. And nothing can stop or bind the word of God from getting to the elect. So endure whatever suffering is necessary. You are on a mission of success because of God's gracious choice. He'll bring about the salvation of the elect and glory and the glory of Christ in their salvation through your suffering. Do you see this motive? Right there, Paul says it. For the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Take that motive. Spirit of God, put that motive in our hearts for the glory of Christ and the future glory and salvation of the elect. 
And that's what, exactly what Paul is talking about when he says in Colossians 1.24, he says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. There we go, rejoicing in suffering again. I rejoice in it because in my flesh, in my body, all the suffering, all the beatings and shipwrecks and sleeplessness and starvation and all the things that Paul went through to get the gospel to the elect, he says, I rejoice in it. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister. See, this isn't, a, this isn't an atoning sort of suffering like Christ was on the cross. We're, we're not suffering, and neither did Paul, in anyone's place under the wrath of God. But these sufferings are productive in bringing men and women and boys and girls whom God has chosen to a salvation in Jesus Christ, productive. That's our motive. That's the motive to endure suffering. Listen, if we truly love Christ and we love the sinners whom Christ loves and has chosen to save, then is there any earthly suffering that is too much for us to endure in the process of proclaiming the unstoppable word of Christ for their salvation and for the glory of Christ? Is there anything that's too much? In truth, in truth, there is no suffering that is too great. It is truly worth it for God's people to endure momentary suffering in order to be used by God to bring about the eternal salvation and glory of the elect and their escape from the just wrath of God and eternal hell. Any suffering that we would have is worth it. Because if we die, what do we have? Gain, right? Think about that. Don't just put it off on the romantic mission field. Bring it home. What about the suffering you may have with a spouse at home? What about the suffering you may have with a family member? What about the suffering you may have with a fellow co-worker or, or, or someone in your neighborhood or someone at the workplace? God will save the elect. The Word of God is not bound. Your suffering is used by Him to bring about the salvation of the elect. So endure. That, that will carry you, won't it? That's a spirit-empowered motivation. So, dear ones, when you struggle to continue to endure suffering as you speak for Christ and, and serve Christ, take these motives into your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember Christ's glory. Remember the salvation, the glory of the elect. Finally, this morning, <clears throat> number three, be motivated by our own glory. Wait a minute. I'm not supposed to be motivated by my own glory. Well, it's not the kind of glory that's an earthly sense of self-congratulation, but rather you're sharing with Christ in His glory on that day when you will be glorified. This is what Paul is calling us to in these final verses. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we'll also live with Him. If we endure, we'll also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. This is a hymn. Paul has put into his text a well-known, well-attested hymn of the early church. If you were to go down in the catacombs under Rome and look on the walls, you would see all kinds of things like this. 
that encourage the believers in their suffering each day as they endured. This is a well-known, well-attested early Christian hymn. And in this hymn, Paul calls us to a very stirring (coughs) perspective (coughs) of our own future. (coughs) Let me say it again. Excuse me. In this hymn, Paul calls us to a very stirring perspective of our own future as it relates to whether or not we faithfully endure suffering or we deny Christ and become unbelieving. This hymn that calls us to Christian perseverance in courageous faith toward Christ manifests... Let me say this. This hymn calls us to Christian perseverance in courageous faith toward Christ that manifests itself by faithful endurance in suffering. But this hymn also warns us against denying Christ in unbelief that manifests itself under the pressures of suffering. There are two sets of conditional statements here. There's two couplets The first couplet has to do with the promise and reward of those who endure. The second couplet has to do with those who deny Christ. The first encouragement that we have here is for those who will die with Christ. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. Now it's a bit challenging to know exactly what kind of death Paul is talking about. Is he talking about the death that happens at justification when you die to self? When you, when you die with Christ to the law and to sin and to punishment and are raised with Him like Romans 6 talks about? Or is it talking about literally dying with Christ as a martyr? And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to take one of those positions that really lumps them all together because they're all connected. Think of it this way. The invitation to follow Christ in this life is an invitation to come and die. Right? You've heard that before. It truly is. Jesus said, whoever comes after me, let him what? Deny himself. Take up his cross. That's an invitation to die. Take up his cross. Luke says daily. And follow me. Coming to Jesus Christ for salvation is a real death, isn't it? It's not a physical death, but it's a real death. It is a positional death in Christ to the tyranny of the law. When we die with Christ in salvation, the law holds no demanding power over us anymore. Christ fulfilled it for us. We are righteous in Christ before God. It's also positional death in Christ to the punishment of the law. We don't have to fear hell anymore. In the death of Christ, I died to the law. I died to the punishment of the law. But also, but also, coming to Christ is death to our devotion to sin, isn't it? It's a severing to slavery to sin. We have to be willing to grieve over our sin and repent of it. Coming to Christ is also a death to our self-righteousness. In coming to Christ for salvation, we have to lay off our own efforts and our own sense of self-worth and goodness. And it's a death to being our own master and submission to the Lordship of Christ. That's, 
just coming to Christ. But then continuing to Christ, continuing in Christ, on the way to becoming like Christ is still death to self, isn't it? It's daily. It's death to self-sufficiency. It's death to our own pride, our own selfish worldly thoughts and words and actions and motive. It's, it's death to worldly comforts and security. It's death to worldly ambitions. And even so, completing the race in Christ will still demand death to self, won't it? Well, we haven't experienced that one yet. Natural death, as a believer, I'm certain will require. That's the last, that's the last test of faith, isn't it? Death to self. Letting go of all that we know in this life to trust that Christ will be faithful in all of His promises. And you know what? We may even be called upon to die the martyr's death in the cause of Christ and never deny Him in order to hold on to our earthly lives. Do you see? Coming to Christ is death if we have died with Him. It's, 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 it's the manifestation of our union with Christ, isn't it? We're not earning anything. It's the proof of our union with Christ. But why? Why would we be willing to endure such death? Because the promise is, if we've died with Him, we'll also live with Him. And that's worth far more than anything we have to let go of in a death. This is not to say that we earn life with Him by our death to self, but rather our death to self from conversion onward demonstrates that we're united with Him in His death. And will share in his life. Just as Christ fully knew that his suffering and death was worth the joys of the glories of heaven to follow. So our suffering and death with him will be worth the joys of the glories of eternal life with him. To be with Jesus and to enjoy him forever will be worth any death. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Romans 6, 8. Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. It's like what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Listen, listen. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Do you hear that? That's the same thing. We've died with Him. We'll live with Him. For we who, are, who, who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It is indeed worth it to die with Christ. Because then we will live with Him. Being in union with Christ guarantees to you the same path of suffering and glory that Christ mastered ahead of you. Think about that. Remember, Christ suffered, died, and was brought to glory. And if you're united with Him you will have that same path to the joys of heaven. Let that motivate you to die whatever death is demanded of you in your life with Christ. You'll never regret it when you enter into the glories of eternal life with Him. 
Jesus said, and calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then the encouragement to endure. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure suffering with Christ, we'll reign with Christ. I don't know exactly what it means to reign with Christ. And that's, again, that's another theme that we bumped into today that we're going to have to save for another time. But I can tell you this. It is going to be far better an experience of fellowship with Christ than what you have ever experienced up to this point or could ever imagine. To reign with Christ. This is what has motivated saints through all the centuries to refuse to deny Christ and to refuse to silence their gospel witness. The reward of reigning with Christ is far better than the momentary losses of suffering. So we must endure for the reward awaits us. Isn't that what Jesus taught? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me give you a few other references to write down and to read later in this regard. Hebrews 10, 32 to 39. Precious, precious truths there to see. Philippians 1.29, dear ones, listen. Think about this carefully. This is what Philippians 1.29 says. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you to believe and to suffer. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now we come to this final couplet, and then we'll we'll close today. Look at this second couplet, 12b and 13. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This couplet is not teaching that a true Christian may lose their salvation. It's not teaching that. What is it teaching? This is teaching us that we must persevere in faith toward Christ and endure suffering by his grace. Because if we, in order to escape the pressure of suffering deny that Christ is our Savior and Lord, and we do not repent of our denial, but continue to deny Him in order to continue to escape the pressure, that means we were never truly His followers to begin with. And He will deny us. That's what it means to hold on to this earthly life and lose eternal life. That's what Jesus is talking about. If you hold this life, you will lose it. And if we become faithless or unbelieving toward Christ in the midst of suffering because 
We would rather escape the hostility of the world and enjoy its pleasures and therefore deny Christ and leave off following him as Lord. That means Christ will be faithful to himself and judge us rightly and condemn us justly with the world for our faithlessness and unbelief. It's exactly what this hymn is saying. Because Christ will not deny himself. He won't deny his own truth. He won't deny his own gospel, his own promises. He won't deny his own righteousness in order to preserve a pretender who denied him and was unbelieving. He won't do that. That's what he said. Matthew 10, 32-33 is the source of these verses. Listen to what Jesus said. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, he will be faithful to himself and his own glory. He cannot deny himself. Now there are those like Peter who denied Christ, but immediately what happened? He was grieved and repented and was changed to be faithful to the very end. There are others throughout history who have momentarily denied Christ and then were grieved over it and repented from it. Thomas Cranmer, for example. You can look at his life. And there are others, unnamed. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about what you see, for example, in Matthew 13, when someone receives the word with joy and then they're crushed by the world's hostility and they're done with Christ. And they would rather deny Him and be comfortable. They are unbelieving now because to believe is to be drawn is to is to lose out on the pleasures of the world. You see, this becomes a way of life, and if this is our way of life, then we were never his to begin with. He will be faithful to himself and deny us. So, dear ones, as we look at this and we hear this warning, and we we hear it next to the promise. Our perspective has shifted 180 degrees. Now, at the end of this, this, these, these words, I can say, in reality, it is too costly not to endure suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Do you feel that with me? It's like this it was like, wow, that's a, that's a lot of cost. But now, after you look through this, it's like, it's too costly not to for the glory of Christ. For the glory of the elect, for our own joy in the glory of Christ, and for the warning that he gives. The suffering of this present life is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Therefore, share in suffering as you proclaim the gospel. Remember the glory of Christ. Remember the glory of the elect. Remember your own glory with Christ. Dear ones, so then let us recognize identify our own self-focused, worldly, fearful, inferior motives as we seek to go about Christ's work. They won't hold up. They won't. And we run the risk of being unfaithful. Let's grieve over them together. Let's repent of them and rest in the cleansing work of Christ just, just as Peter was cleansed and restored by Jesus. 
so he will us. And receive from the Holy Spirit these motives. You ask for them, he'll give them to you. And may the Holy Spirit fill us with them so that he would empower us to endure suffering as we speak and serve for Christ. And my dear friend, if, if you have not yet come to Christ, desperate for his forgiveness of your own sin and, and his loving lordship in your life, then come to him today. I want to invite you to come to Christ today if you have not come to him as Savior and Lord. If you've never heard the gospel, come, let us share it with you. If you've heard the gospel 20,000 times and yet in your heart you know that you are not Christ's, you've been pretending, I know it has to be incredibly painfully hard to humble yourself and to come out with who you really are. But you know, the glory following it would be so worth that sacrifice of death to self. Come to Christ. Turn from your sin. Turn from your self-righteousness. Turn to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is a sufficient Savior to remove your guilt and punishment and give you his own righteousness to stand you perfect before his Father's throne with great joy. There's nothing in this world that is too valuable to let go of in order to have Christ and his righteousness and the reward of eternal life with him. So if you would like to become a true follower of Christ today, please don't leave today without coming to one of us so that we can show you the glory of Christ as Savior and Lord. We would love that. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, it it is a high and lofty thing that you call us to. And we confess our weakness and our frailty, our fears, our worldliness, our eyes so much on the things only that we can see. Lift our eyes to the things of heaven. Thank you for the sufficient advocate and the propitiator that stands before you, declaring us righteous. And Father, progress the work of sanctification in us. Purify our motives. We will always wrestle with them to the very end before we see you face to face and are perfected. But make progress in us, Father, by your Holy Spirit. Take us to a new level of glory in Christ, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.